Yo, it's Tim Davidson, and you're listening to the Greatest Years in Stars podcast, and I'm your host. Coming off of uh, episode six, my Chris Benoit 2001 episode, I got a couple of uh, really good comments and questions that had came in that I was immediately going to address. And... This man asked, why do you think guys like Benoit and Eddie only got one world title run apiece while others like Triple H, Cena, Orton, and others got multiple runs with the belt? And as big of a fan as I was of both Benoit and Guerrero's in-ring work, they were they were small guys. They were small guys. They were around 5'8", 5'9", no more than 5'10", on a good day. And if you look back at the history of the business, didn't matter how phenomenal of a worker you were, because both those guys were exactly that. They were phenomenal in the ring. They were very versatile, and they could work with anybody. Their, their stuff was believable, um, and, and they were intense. You know, so they literally, because when it came to their stature, that, that's what I know in my heart of hearts of why they didn't get multiple runs. If those guys were 6'3", six, 6'4", six, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they would have had more runs with the belt and sooner because both of those guys had came in um, in the year 2000. And they both ironically didn't get uh, to, 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 the, to the mountaintop uh, uh, until 2004, one month apart from each other. I mean, Eddie Guerrero won um, his world title at, at No Way Out 2004, one, one month before WrestleMania, the pay-per-view before WrestleMania 20, where obviously Benoit would win his world title, his first world title with the company. So, um, and that, that was it for them. Now, you know, now, unfortunately, I think it was possible now, you know, with uh, with Eddie, who who would die the following year, the, the late part of 2005, he would pass, as we all know. Um, you know, but I, don't, I, I, I can say with confidence, I can say with absolute confidence that he more than likely was not going to get another run with the belt, um, much like Benoit didn't. You know, and Benoit was with the company until 2007. So, you know, things are what they are. It, it was awesome to see them have uh, some some good runs with the uh, with the world titles. It was very um, pleasant to my eye, as I know it was for many others who were. I mean, I went back all the way to WCW with those guys um, as far as 1995 and 96. So, I'm glad that they were able to get at least one solid run with the straps uh, before they ultimately had died. So, and, and with that said, I will be covering in future episodes their respective title years. But today, I will cover a man who was most certainly an unsung hero in the year 2000, in my opinion. A man who was over 
almost as if anybody else. Almost. Not quite, but I would say he was about a second or, or third tier babyface as if I would rank him. I would say a second tier. He, he was like mid-card. Never really got to main event status, but yeah, man, he was over but he's with the fans. And uh, I'm referring to none other than Rikishi. And that right there is what episode seven is all about. Is Rikishi Fatsu, who came through. Um, he made his debut in late 99. Ironically, at Survivor Series 1999 off camera. Uh, I'll, get, I'll get back to that here in a little while. And um, he immediately clicked with Too Cool, which is a combination of uh, Scott Taylor, Scotty Tuhati, and Brian Christopher. So they immediately made a connection and started teaming together. And going into the year 2000, Rikishi was, to, to, show, to, to, really, to, to really put into perspective just how much he got over and how much he was being pushed in the year 2000. Uh, he would enter the, the 2000 Royal Rumble in January. Nobody had more eliminations than Rikishi did. He had a total, he had a, a, a total of seven eliminations in that match. And at one point, he threw four consecutive men out while waiting for his next opponent to come to the ring, including his own his own uh, his own partners. Too cool. But um, he ultimately would be eliminated by five men at around the 16-minute mark of him being in the Royal Rumble. Um, but huge statement made in the Royal Rumble um, before ultimately being eliminated. He then would go on to team with Too Cool uh, in the next pay-per-view, which was No Way Out, to take on the new Radicals who had just made their debut in late January. And that would consist of Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, and the aforementioned Eddie Guerrero, and Chris Benoit. And Too Cool and Rikishi would go over in the match. Um, pretty good match. That, and, and, and let me just go ahead and just and say for the record, Too Cool also was over just as much as Rikishi. I mean, they they really got some very good receptions from the crowd every single time they came out i mean they were over they were over you know it, nothing like obviously the rock or stone cold or nothing like that taker uh, that's that's why i said it was more of a second tier but no lower than third they were they were they were over though uh and, and rikishi once he debuted the his uh, stink face you want to talk about reactions from the crowd. I mean, every single time he would even threaten uh, the stink face, the crowd would just eat that up. Uh, it's just funny how sometimes the damnedest things <laughs> can get over. The damnedest things, like, you know, like when, when, you, when you look at The Rock for taking him as an example, and uh, when he started doing the people's elbow in early 1998, when he started doing it way back when he was with the nation. As a matter of fact, late 97, I remember him doing it 
uh, against against Stone Cold Steve Austin at, at the uh, at the Degeneration X pay per view. But I mean, it, it sometimes things take a while. But little would you know, it's the most over move in the company. It would become the most over move in the company. Same thing with uh, Scotty Too Hotties Worm. I mean, it, it's it's just amazing, man. How how just the the the, the most silliest nonsensical type maneuvers will get over it doesn't even have to make somebody go ooh or turn their head but just something that's just entertaining ultimately you know like if it's just if it's entertaining it has a possibility of getting over and catching fire you know and that's exactly what too what happened with too cool and uh the, the and, and the stink face and the worm they those those they, those moves really caught fire, you know, for that stable. Rikishi would go on to get a title shot, a very very good match against Triple H on SmackDown, uh, which he ultimately would would come up short. Um, but the fact that again though, I, as I said though, the, he he was getting pushed. Like he was getting pushed, and a lot of that has to do is because the fans were behind him. They were behind him, and he would go on to WrestleMania and team up with Kane to take on DX, which is really X Pac and uh, Road Dog, and uh, they would end up winning the match in about five minutes. Kane and Rikishi, and that was about it for them. For them, that was just really just a one-off with Rikishi and Kane. Which she then go on to uh, WWF Judgment Day to once again team with, with Too Cool and would defeat Edge Christian and Kurt Angle in the uh, opener of the pay per view in about 10 minutes and a solid match, six man tag. But again, it just illustrates that put that Keisha was getting. Whether he was teaming up or in his solo after. He was getting pushed in the Valley. And I'm particularly interested that it would continue to play out as he qualifies for the King of the Ring tournament. And at the King of the Ring review, he would defeat Chris Watt by DQ in the first round. He would go on, beat Alvinus in the second round by pinball. Uh, and then only in the finals, where he would meet Kurt Angle, he would lose devastating fashion via Angle Slam off the second row. So, very strong outing at the Kingdom of Tournament, just comes up short. Um, and at this point, he's actually beginning to feud without Venus. And uh, they have what I what I would describe as as, as, as a Scott Classic at fully loaded 2000, the very next pay per view inside of a steel cage. Um, most people that probably if one one side just said that that should ring a bell because this is the iconic cage match where Rikishi off the top goes flying all the way to the top of the cage. And, and splashes Alpine in front of the top of the cage. Um, a, a real iconic moment. 
the spectacle to see. Um, why that wasn't the finish, I'll never know. Um, but as interferes in the match, this repetition with the camera that allows Valvinus to pick up the win. Uh, nevertheless, though, um, I mean, the focus I mean, was, was absolutely on the key-in spot. It's a very good pay-per-view overall. Very good pay-per-view that was, that was headlined by Rock and Chris Benoit in the main event. Also, Triple H versus Chris Jericho in a last-minute standing match, as well as Undertaker versus Triangle in what the company called uh, a triple main event pattern going into the car. Now, now Batista was out a minor injury uh, for, for, for SummerSlam, but he would be back on paper one month later. Uh, at Alfred in Sefi Guerrero. And uh, this was for the IC title. Now, what's interesting about this particular card and match is, is, is somewhat starting to show some heel tendencies in this match. He's coming off a little heelish. And I say this is interesting because this is also the same pay-per-view where Stone Cold made his return from his uh, neck injury, where a year earlier at Survivor Series, where he was run down by an automobile. So the reason why I find that interesting as a whole, as I mentioned earlier, is that Rikishi is getting ready to turn heel. He, he ultimately, uh, just two weeks later on Raw, is, known, is, is, is found to be the driver who ran down Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he goes into about a eight-minute promo talking about why he did it and that he did it for The Rock. It's, it's a very famous promo now. Everybody should remember it as if it happened last week. And Rikishi himself says that he was completely against turning heel, that he knew he was over as a babyface, and that he wanted to keep going with what he had. Uh, and, I, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him. There's a lot of people that felt that um, this was a wrong move. And me personally, I, I really thought it, it just didn't make sense. It really didn't make any sense. Even with his explanation during his promo, um, I thought they could have got somebody better. Uh, no, no disrespect to Rikishi by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, I mean, just somebody more fitting. It would have made more sense if, if it was somebody like from DX, for example. Anybody, especially Triple H, which in turn, it does turn out to be that Triple H was the quote-unquote mastermind behind uh, hiring Rikishi to run down Austin. Um, but, but ultimately, as far as Rikishi being the wheel man, that just doesn't make sense because, um, he would not gain anything from that as far as in, in the storyline. I mean, he talks about, he did it for the rock and how all these quote unquote great white hopes before Stone Cold Steve Austin always, um, 
pushed his fellow Samoans and people of color behind the great white hopes. You know, but so that 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 was just it was it was kind of it's it was almost lame, you know, as far as how I felt about it. Now, personally, I actually thought that as a heel in the short run that he had as a heel, that he actually got some steam. That he actually got some steam. He got some, a good amount of heat, um, and he could have had a decent title run. As a matter of fact, Rikishi was uh, was promised a title run if if he if he actually went through with with turning heel, uh, and that unfortunately for him never came to fruition and never materialized. Uh, although he did get a world title shot, but I, and I'll get there in a moment. But Stone Cold and him have a match at No Mercy in, in, in uh, October 2000 in a no-holds-barred match. Uh, a match that ends in a no contest. I mean, basically, they're brawling all over the place. Um, Stone Cold is fighting the street clothes. And uh, I remember specifically where he takes him to the back, puts him in the truck, in his pickup truck, because that's how he rolled in, was in his pickup truck. And he takes him all the way to the parking lot and basically tries to reenact what Rikishi did to him, but gets in, but gets intercepted by uh, police. So the outing lasts maybe about 12 minutes before this ultimately happens. And, um, and ultimately, Rikishi comes back later on in the night because he's beaten and battered. He comes back later in the night to help out The Rock in the title match against Kurt Angle. Uh, accidentally super kicks The Rock, which helps Kurt Angle win the world title, win his first world title. And so the next night on Raw, The Rock and Rikishi are in the ring. The Rock tells him to stay out of his life. He doesn't need his help. Um, and ultimately, Rock Bottoms Rikishi. Rikishi retaliates a week later by hitting The Rock uh, with a sledgehammer. In, in, in a drive-by type situation, as a matter of fact. Um, and this would set up a match at Survivor Series 2000 between the two. Solid match, good match. Um, the Rock ultimately gets the win with the uh, people's elbow. Uh, at the end of the match, Rock gets super kicked. Rikishi hits three bonsai drops on The Rock. A month later, The Rock and Rikishi, among four others, would be in the, the one and only six-pack Hell in a Cell for the world title. And once again, much like, much like at his, his uh, July pay-per-view he had with Val Venus in a cage match, Rikishi finds himself at the top of the of the cage, the cell, and uh, very famously 
gets choke slammed off the top of the cell into the back of a, of a truck by the Undertaker. Another one of these high, high spots, real legit bumps that uh, Rikishi finds himself taking off the top of a cage. That's the second time in the same year that that that, that happened. Uh, and that and that that's about it. It's a very underrated match, by the way. Um, the six pack Hell in a Cell match. I would recommend anybody go back and, and revisit that match uh, because that match was that match was awesome. I mean, I give that match uh, a, a, a nine out of ten, four stars. <laughs> I give that match uh, four and a half, actually. But that would wrap up Rikishi's uh, year two thousand, and um, he would begin to continue his heel run going into two uh, into 2001 and I will most certainly jump back to Rikishi at some point in time in future episodes but a very very good year somebody who didn't get enough credit in the year 2000 and as as much it's, it's interesting because as much as he was over as a baby face and the things that he accomplished as a babyface, as far as with the fans and um, putting a stink face on the map, uh, winning the Intercontinental Championship from Chris Benoit, um, and also the spectacle in the cage matches that he had. What, what he did as a heel actually is more prominent in my mind than as a babyface. I actually thought, like I said, I actually thought he did pretty well as as a heel, and that he got some some good heat, and that I think he could have had a decent title run, you know. But I guess it wasn't to be. But again, that wraps up this particular episode. If you guys got any questions, as always, you can leave leave me comment below. Or you can just email me as I've been getting some at tdavidson1182 at yahoo.com. And I will most certainly continue to answer any questions or comments on future episodes. But again, that wraps up this episode. And uh, I will bring to you guys in episode eight, the 1992 year of the legendary Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs>